and welcome to this week's episode of the Wales Arts Review podcast. Hello, Croisoi Wales Arts Review podcast. I'm Josie. And I'm Rosie, and we're your hosts. This week, we're celebrating one year of bringing you the Wales Arts Review podcast. That's right. <laughs> We've been at this <laughs> a whole year, interviewing brilliant guests and exploring the fabulous articles on the Wales Arts Review site, written by fantastic contributors. In this episode, we're going to reveal our top five most listened to episodes. We'll count down, reflecting on each episode. Alongside our top five episodes, we discuss some of our most inspiring interviews, shout out to our listeners and say thank you to those who have supported us along the way. We'll also be letting you know how you can contribute to the Wales Arts Review podcast to help it grow and develop in the upcoming year. So, I went through some of the SoundCloud stats, Rosie, to have a look at our top listen to. This doesn't include our Spotify listens, partly because Mm. we can't access them at the minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're counting down our top five most listened to of all time in in, in the year, which is very exciting. And uh, I think we've got some good episodes here. A nice nice mix for our listeners. (laughs) So in number five... We have episode 17, The Story of Welsh Art. So this was our episode with Hugh Stevens. That's quite a recent one, relatively. Yeah, I think I remember getting the email and being Mm. really excited that somebody from the BBC had contacted us. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being really out of it for some reason. I was trying to think back as like what was happening at the time. I don't know if I was a bit ill or something, but I remember thinking, oh, and we've got this interview, the Hugh Stevens interview, and I'm just not with it. (laughs) I I think it clearly turned out fine. It was great. I mean, because we also had uh, the producer, the director of the show on as well. Yeah, Ian Jones. Yeah, which was a lovely addition. And I think we got so much more out of it as well by having his input. I just found it really great. I also loved the show. That was my Sunday afternoon before interviewing them was watching all three episodes to (laughs) talk about art (laughs) in Wales. That's always nice, isn't it? When you can kind of work something like that into work that you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) Yes, yeah. I think as well, we were both sort of a bit nervous about interviewing Hugh Stevens and not that he made a mistake, (laughs) but like, it's nice to know that people who are far more professional than us bumble a bit wrong and and of of an art or an artist i think that chilled us right out because we were like oh you make the same mistakes we do i have to say though both of them were like i i felt pretty at ease from the outset of the interview i mean that may that may be because i was slightly out of it for reasons i can't remember as i said but it was actually like it was really nice to speak to them wasn't it? I remember as well in that episode, you um you discussed a piece, is it Michelle Wilson, Cleansing the Land? Yeah. It's about kind of environmental legacies. Yeah. I remember that being really good. Something about blackberries. <laughs> was it that one? <laughs> blackberries? <laughs> yeah. I swear it's that, like... Yes, that was... episode, yes, it was the Canadian artist. So this was the, yeah. the review that I, I spoke about. And it was an interview or in conversation with a Canadian artist who was actually using clay from certain areas. Yes, yeah. But, like, not firing the clay so that it would eventually return back to the earth, this kind of very sort of sustainable environmental way of thinking about how art combines with mm. with the world around us, which I find I found really interesting, especially with the discussion of things like um, Indigenous peoples in Canada and how they've been affected by big businesses, big sort of factories and stuff coming in and kind of ruining the flora and fauna of those areas. And that is what her work was really pointing to and highlighting the fact that there should be some sort of return. There should be a cycle in what we do. Yeah. And what we create should be able to return back, which is why she made that very um, conscious decision not to fire the clay, which I found thoroughly interesting. Yeah, yeah. But she uses the blackberries to colour the clay. Oh, that's what it was. That's, that's what um, it was. With the blackberries like polluted. Yes. So well, and yeah. they'd go along and, okay. and this was the issue was that they'd go along um indigenous people would go along picking the blackberries to eat. But they were obviously high in certain thing certain like chemicals that were yeah. that were bad for them. But this kind of this reliance on the land or this um returning to a constant using of the land, like going through pathways that you normally would to pick these fruits and stuff. 
Mm. Those your families and like communities have been eating for generations and then for them to be polluted. How does that sort of speak to our treatment, both of like First Nationers in, in, in Canada, but also just more generally of like, how can we be sustainable when maybe things like the plants and stuff that we grow are already polluted because of waste in the soil and whatnot? Yeah. We'll play you a bit from the episode just to give you a reminder of what happened in episode 17. I found I find it interesting that I think there's a, an interview sort of near the end where the artist mentions how sort of um, eccentric and sporadic Welsh art is. I found that really intriguing, partly because it's not tied to any sort of specific institutions, because part of what was so great about the show was showing how far and wide Welsh art is spread and there isn't sort of a tie say to like a, the Royal Institute of Art or anything like that there isn't like a you're rooted in a specific art style or anything like that there's something quite fluid and flexible about Welsh art because it's not rooted in a certain place yeah and I think that's true about Wales's music as well in that it is very eclectic and in the art world as we'll see in the program you know artists weren't afraid to travel to um, the rest of the UK and to Europe to France and to Italy and at the same time lots of people would come into Wales to paint Wales and you know tell the world through us kind of thing how beautiful Wales was, so um, or Wales is rather. So yeah, it shows Wales as a really complex story. And yeah, Bedwin Williams, I think, is the artist who gives the quote in the last episode, and he says that it's knobbly and gnarly. And I love that. It is. It is like a patchwork quilt mm. of the stories. And so that's why I think the program is surprising, and that's why the story of Welsh art is surprising, and it's full of twists and turns. So when watching, we found the range of media and the forms of Welsh art across the ages to be particularly striking. So what does this range suggest to you about the richness of Welsh art and its roots and its future? One decision we made with the series was to start way back in the mists of time. So before, I think we say in the series, before there was such a thing as Wales and before there was such a thing as art as we know it. So, which is an interesting place to start a series on Welsh art. And that immediately takes you into unusual forms of art in terms of modern, or maybe not so much in terms of art today. But certainly, if you think of the high academic tradition of art, paint on wood or paint on canvas, we're dealing at the beginning with stone carvings in a Neolithic burial chamber and then a beaten gold as a, as a, as a worn decoration and then uh, illuminated manuscripts, um, Celtic crosses and so on. So I think the variety that you find early on is obviously to do with technology and expression and to, to some extent to do with what survives. You, you, you aren't going to get the more fragile work surviving from those times. As we move on, I think we do come more into the mainstream of, of artistic materials, if you like, and by the time we get to the 18th century, we are dealing with uh, oil on canvas to a large extent. It might be that, that that happens a bit later in Wales because you don't have such a degree of stability and that the bigger, bolder, more durable works have survived better. And some of the rather unusual and, and remarkable survivals like the stained glass window in uh, in Denbyshire at Llantrader and, and Kinmerch, which is one of the very few to have survived in Wales and is obviously very fragile, but potentially was hidden by the villagers when, when it might have been destroyed. So I think that the range of materials possibly does reflect a more unusual and less conventional art history in Wales compared to, say, the, the classic European countries you associate with art, like Italy and France, where you might find more conventional works from from earlier that we only come to in, the, say, the 18th century in Wales. The, in the first episode, you speak about the Triscolls and, and that symbolism that comes through and, and um, you visit the carved statue of Jesse, that, that wooden statue. And what struck me was how, kind of how cyclical <laughs> Welsh art kind of also seems to be because we then get that return to Welsh sculptures later on uh, in the contemporary sort of episode. And I found it interesting that there is this story then within Welsh art and through the mediums that we see this returning to older art through those mediums as well. I mean, that struck me as well. I mean, in the first episode, I get to visit the Abergavenny Jesse, 
And I didn't know about the story of the Jesse until we started filming, to be honest. And we see the Jesse in the aforementioned stained glass window as well. And then to kind of finish up with David Nash in Blaine for Stinyog, who works with a lot of wood as well. That cyclical nature was interesting. And th- there were things that surprised me along the way, like the Jesse, you know, I've gone into so many churches and uh, there's so many, much grey and there's so much wood. But realising during the filming that, of course, when they were made they were multicolored and they had gold and silver and they were they were painted to stand out and it's just through time that they end up looking like they look in the celtic cross is a big part in the first episode as well and i always presumed that you know they'd always looked weather beaten and knackered outside churches but obviously that's just a recent thing We want to do a quick shout out to one of our listeners who got in touch on Twitter. Uh, Gareth Smith, long time listener who loves giving us a message after every couple of every episodes he's listened to. He and he's a two time interviewee and a regular contributor to the Wales Arts Review. And Gareth has said that the podcast has been, and I quote, a really good way to find out about cultural events happening in Wales. I've listened to watch new things as a result of the podcast. It's nice, it's different, it's unusual. And uh, (laughs) I very much appreciate the Kath and Kim reference there, Gareth. (laughs) And there's fluff in your latchkey for Gareth Smith. Uh, we also want to say a big thank you, actually, as well, to Dr. Becky Mumford, who was kind enough to put one of our episodes, the next episode we're going to be discussing, onto her reading list for a second year module at university. So we ended up with a whole load of new listeners from <laughs> second year, which was quite exciting. Rosie, would you like to introduce the next episode? <laughs> And so at number four, we have episode three, titled being 100 Page Turners, Coming of Age and Spectacular Girls. So we can see how it was on her girls module, wasn't it? Yes. On the reading list, Becky put us on. So in that one then, we interviewed Dr. Emma Schofield regarding the 100 Page Turners series. So that was, it was kind of off the back of the BBC version, 100 Page Turners that had like, was it like one or two Welsh texts? It was kind of like the, I, I believe it was kind of in conversation with the fact that this was a 100 Page Turners of the UK mm. and there were just, was it two authors on there? One of them being Roald Dahl. Yeah. That yeah. they sort of classed as, as Welsh. And so this was kind of the Wales Arts Review's I'd say challenge. I think it's a challenge to the BBC and I think it's a good challenge because it raised a lot of brilliant Welsh literature that we've got out there. And it was mm-hmm. these 10 categories, each kind of looking at things from like crime, politics. Like crime and punishment, yeah. coming of age. Children's family stories, friends. family and friends. Yeah, kind of. It was just a really good, a brilliant list, really. Yeah, that I was going to say like, it's kind of... um like you say a challenge because it, it kind of sought to show the like the breadth of Welsh literature that was missed mm. but also even if you take it as something separate from the BBC version mm. it's also just showing you like how much Welsh literature is out there to enjoy. Yeah and I like, think the list itself did such a good job and not only highlighting kind of classic Welsh literature say like Arthur Macken's The Great God Pan sort of literature from like the early 20th century for Wales but also then very kind of contemporary literature as well things like um pigeon so mm. kind of really contemporary literature that i think really showcases just the skill of welsh writers yeah it's a really good kind of resource yeah to refer back to when you're unsure on what to read next i think as yeah. well but something that kind of emerged with our discussion with with emma as well was um this kind of idea of tensions around putting things into categories mm. In a way, because obviously, because of the nature of the, the series, there had to be categories. But as she said, you know, there's slippage between all of them. Yeah. And I think you'll find, Josie, that very easily moves on to the next topic of this episode. <laughs> this idea of rejecting kind of easy categorization mm-hmm. and think about girlhood as a flexible mode of femininity or becoming woman. Yes. Yeah. And so for that segment of the episode, we spoke about Dure Shawa's literary vignette, The Girl. Which was brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. I think about that all the time, actually. 
weirdly enough since reading that I think about it a lot yeah and then we also talked about um Clementine Schneiderman's it's called fashion yeah yeah, yeah which yeah. was was that it was your review, was review of, of the event yeah so this was yeah. an event put on I think in conjunction with a few things, but definitely like image works at Cardiff University. And really it was quite exciting to see a number of academics kind of speak to the different elements of Schneiderman's work from kind of girlhood and like constructions of femininity through to kind of landscape politics and kind Mm -hmm. of like locational politics, the fact that these are in the valleys. The images are fantastic. I would recommend anybody go check out Schneiderman's website and the images there. I decided to focus on an article written by Josie back in 2019, um, exploring a photography project focusing on pre-adolescent girls by Clementine Schneiderman and Charlotte James titled All the Oddities of Wales. So in this article, Josie, you write that in 2015, Clementine Schneiderman, a French photographer living in South Wales, and Charlotte James, a creative director and stylist from Merthyr Tydfil, began a series of costume-making workshops at the Gettleder Youth Centre in Merthyr Tydfil and at the Coid Kai Interact Club near Bryn Mawr. From these workshops would come their project, It's Called Fashion. Four years in the making, the project, characterised by hybridity, flexibility and playfulness, searched for all the oddities in Wales and has left a conversation regarding Valley's communities and their creative futures in its wake. So the photographs themselves are absolutely beautiful and some are available to view embedded throughout your article. My favourite image included is titled Ghost Smurtha. It features three girls stood against the warm facade of a house, each of them covered in a sheet with holes cut out for eyes. I love how trainers peep out from the bottom of one girl's sheet and how her head's topped with a white hat. Um, it's very playful, it's very strange. And I find it really interesting how the girls almost merge into their background. So they really kind of slip from sight. And when you see them, the costumes are so kind of um, something very like, obvious about like a ghost costume but just like with a sheet over your head right is something that's really like artificial in a way I think this photo was actually taken there was kind of like seasonal elements to the project so Mm. this was taken around Halloween so this idea of like playfulness of costumes as well that you're mentioning I think that really draws out when you think about the the sort of seasonal themes that she brought in um, Mm. that Schneiderman brought into the photography and and through the costumes that they had sort of playing with the space that they have yeah so they kind of really as I said they just almost merge with their with their backgrounds they're against like a white kind of speckled yeah yeah so when, when you do actually see them once you see their outlines, you you can't not see them. They really kind of incite a jolt of oddity. Um, so elsewhere, you you point out as well about this contrast between communion dresses and Adidas trainers, um, and how the subjects perform masculinity and femininity simultaneously. So again, you're kind of articulating how girlhood, as you say, they're neither fully realised women nor children under the watchful eye of parents. The combination of costume camouflage and artificiality offers a gendered spectrum upon which these girls can play and destabilise social constructions and expectations. So yeah, you're kind of articulating how girlhood's this liminal coming of age space and how it then might be thought of as a productive site for rethinking the ways in which we perform gender as adults as well. The piece I chose this week when thinking about the theme of coming of age and our discussions of girlhood is part of a series of literary vignettes by the Wales Art Review, which gives glimpses into the thinking of the writer and their experiences. And I've chosen DeRay Shawa's piece, The Girl, which captures a bus journey at rush hour. As the narrator sort of watches a mother and daughter on their their way home, we assume. Um, And it's apparent that the two have quarrelled and there is this underlying tension there that something is meant to happen that the narrator will never see, which is beautifully accentuated by the end of the piece where the narrator states when they do eventually get off the bus at their stop I feel a sense of loss like finding a book with half its pages ripped out this idea of there's something more that the narrator is never going to sort of witness can't be part of and it's like even though it's the it's the speaker's desire to hear more I think that also then feeds into the reader's desire like we we want to know what's happening this girl we want to hear more yeah as well and the the piece made me think of um Deborah K Davis's short story collection that we mentioned earlier talking to Emma um Grace 
Tamar and Laszlo the Beautiful, which in that set of short stories really sort of challenges our ideas of girlhood and the lives of girls growing into women, which is so often obscured through sort of the projected ideas of what girl means or should mean or how you should behave. And the story's focus itself is on this young girl, you know, so it was assumed to be about five years old. And as the narrator is watching this girl, there's like a moment where the girl suddenly spits on the bus, right? And like, there's this idea that, like, it's kind of like this shock moment, of like she's just spat on the bus. Um, But I think it really feeds into this idea of like, what girls aren't supposed to do. You know, girls aren't supposed to be disgusting. They aren't supposed to share these like, or show these bodily fluids, right? The visceralness of, of their existence. And that sort of writes against our ideas of what like proper feminine behaviour and manners are and like raises the sort of idea or, or concern of like the messiness of being girls. Coming in at number three <laughs> is <laughs> one of the episodes I find most cringeworthy to listen back to because it's episode number one, which was our first ever episode that we recorded. Yeah. We were very new to the podcasting game. We've had a lot of help since then. And this was the Black Lives Matter, Newport Race Riots, an interview with Natalie and Holbro. We're still feeling our way into the format. Is how I'm going to say. Yeah. Whenever I listen back, whenever friends tell me that they're like, oh, I've started listening. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Go to like episode three. <laughs> but at the same time, so this this was one of our first episodes to re over, reach over 200 listens. Mm-hmm. It was This came out at a time where the Black Lives Matters protests were going across the, the US and the UK. There was serious conversation happening in the media and, and across sort of communities about the treatment of people of colour in the UK and the US. I, I guess it was a thing where it's like, it's not like we were going to record this episode and not talk about it because it was so current. But at the same time, I guess we wanted to be thoughtful about what our conversation could actually like bring to anything do you know what I mean we didn't just want to talk about Black Lives Matter for the sake of it because everyone else was yeah you know and I found Shaheen Sutton's piece on the Newport race rights that was a really interesting way of connecting or just bringing those discussions of people of colour's experiences into a Welsh context Yeah. yeah and history that I wasn't aware of that yeah absolutely you know I think uh, really highlighted that episode. There was I remember a lot of talk about statues as well, and I was thinking that's still going on. The the conversation like about like should you remove statues because this was also just after the Edward Colston one, and then they put up that weird box around Churchill because they thought people were going to tear Churchill down. People yeah. were kind of just protecting any statue, like some people were protecting war memorials, and it's like that's we're not <laughs> people aren't pulling down every statue. What they're protesting is the fact that like a statue in itself is a form of celebration it's Mm. not really a form of memorial or a statue when you only put up statues of certain people you are celebrating what they've done yeah and it's like we're not saying Edward Colston was completely wholly a bad person but a statue does not teach you the full extent of what his or how his philanthropy could come about like yeah yeah yes he built a lot of Bristol but like that is money that was made via the slave trade. So like, yeah, it's okay to have that nuanced conversation. But a I statue like, doesn't really do that. Yeah, it's it's really grown. I think it keeps going back to the statues, but it's really just grown into like all these debates around like free speech and like wokeness and and things like that. And notions of like just... erasing history and stuff, which I think is yeah, you know kind of a worn out example but most people sort of say you don't forget world war Two just because the germans don't have any statues of like figures from the third reich you know yeah <laughs> from the nazi yeah. party um but you know what this kind of shit like i know i know that obviously there are still going to be groups of people talking about black lives matter and still kind of um pursuing justice where they can for certain things but like the way that this conversation has just moved away do you know what I mean? From something like Black Lives Matter, when I'm confident that the issues themselves haven't changed. Well, we also spoke to Natalie Ann Holbrook in that 
episode as well. That was a fantastic interview, I believe, about uh, the practice of writing in lockdown and the notion of a room of one's own, but the issue of collaboration. Like Mm. the fact that collaboration is a key part of creative writing and the lockdown kind of um, severed those ties. And there was yes. a lot of isolation for for creative writers. And Natalie, I wonder how much um, we've like adapted since. I think there's definitely been an uptake of like the digital platforms. Yeah, but I wonder if there is, and not I wonder. I know that there is a difference between like sitting on Zoom with people and actually just being able to like meet people in a park or like grab a coffee with someone to chat through ideas. I don't know, something about online kind of feels a little formal, unless you're I know what you mean. recording the Wales Arts podcast. And I was going to say, like, it's weird that like, but like for us, it's like we arranged to record over Zoom and then talk for like one to two hours before we actually start Yeah, recording. to our listeners, it's like we would actually slam out the podcast with our script in probably like 45 minutes if we didn't <laughs> just like talk about life alongside of it and talk about all the stuff we're supposed to talk about in the podcast for two hours before actually hitting the record button yeah i mean some things could stay out like our discussions about crisps (laughs) and fabergé eggs (laughs) is money even real what is inflation (laughs) what i've learned is that you actually can just print more money (laughs) just de-inflate it it's not that deep everyone's being so weird about it just print more money (laughs) anyway because of the money that they gained from that you know according to the national archives britain's slave trade was to quote most dominant between 1640 and 1807 when the british slave trade was abolished 1807 um it was established that britain transported 3.1 million africans of whom 2.7 million arrived to the british colonies in the caribbean North and South America and other countries. We are very much implicated in this. You know, we mm. can't just sit there and say, oh no, it's the US's problem. We have to acknowledge yeah. that. There's also a sense of like, not only is it, oh, it's the US's problem, but also like, you know, it's in the past. We all agree it was terrible, but it's in the past. So there's a real kind of, like you said, there's a lack of um, willing or willing, willing to be critical about the way that these histories in, still inform our present. Yeah, definitely. You know, lots. I think lots of people like to say, you know, especially with the statues being being taken down. Oh no, that was that was back then. As if, mm. yeah, yeah. As if we don't want to acknowledge that what happened back then directly feeds into what is happening now. Oh, the Victorian era. That's you know, that's back then. Oh, it's still it is a- that thing. It's that idea of oh, it was a different time. I've I've had these conversations before about like songs that have slurs in or if we think about like I don't know that Fawlty Towers episode and it's like well it, it was a different time however is what's being represented there still useful or appropriate or productive for us now because of the money that they gained from that you know According to the National Archives, Britain's slave trade was, to quote, most dominant between 1640 and 1807. When the British slave trade was abolished, 1807, um, it was established that Britain transported 3.1 million Africans, of whom 2.7 million arrived, to the British colonies in the Caribbean, North and South America and other countries. We are very much implicated in this. You know, we mm. can't just sit there and say, oh no, it's the US's problem. We have to acknowledge yeah. that. There's also a sense of like, not only is it, oh, it's the US's problem, but also like, you know, it's in the past. We all agree it was terrible, but it's in the past. So there's a real kind of, like you said, there's a lack of um, willing or willing, willing to be critical about the way that these histories in, still inform our present yeah definitely you know lots i think lots of people like to say you know especially with the statues being being taken down oh no that was that was back then as if Mm. yeah yeah as if we don't want to acknowledge that what happened back then directly feeds into what is happening now oh the victorian era that's you know that's back then 
Oh, it's it's a... that thing. It's that idea of oh, it was a different time. And I've I've had these conversations before about like songs that have slurs in, or if we think about like I don't know that Bogdy Towers episode, and it's like well, it it was a different time. However, is what's being represented there still useful or appropriate or productive for us now? because of the money that they gained from that. You know, according to the National Archives, Britain's slave trade was, to quote, most dominant between 1640 and 1807. When the British slave trade was abolished, 1807, um, it was established that Britain transported 3.1 million Africans, of whom 2.7 million arrived, to the British colonies in the Caribbean, North and South America and other countries. We are very much implicated in this. You know, we mm. can't just sit there and say, oh no, it's the US's problem. We have to acknowledge yeah. that. There's also a sense of like, not only is it, oh, it's the US's problem, but also like, you know, it's in the past. We all agree it was terrible, but it's in the past. So there's a real kind of, like you said, there's a lack of um, willing or willing, willing to be critical about the way that these histories in, still inform our present. Yeah, definitely. You know, lots, I think lots of people like to say, you know, especially with the statues being being taken down, oh, no, that was that was back then. As if, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. as if we don't want to acknowledge that what happened back then directly feeds into what is happening now. Oh, the Victorian era, that's, you know, that's back then. Oh, it's it's that thing. It's that idea of, oh, it was a different time. I've, I've had these conversations before about like songs that have slurs in or if we think about like I don't know that Bogdy Towers episode and it's like well it, it was a different time however is what's being represented there still useful or appropriate or productive for us now? This is where we ask you to support us on coffee. So our aim in the upcoming year is to be able to pay our guests for their time on the podcast. All have been incredibly kind enough and patient enough with us to take time out of their busy days to sit down and chat about the piece that they wrote, about exhibitions that they've curated, about cinema programmes they've put together. And many of our interviewees are students and as students ourselves, we are well aware of the pervasiveness and the unfairness of, of unpaid labour. This is why we're asking you, our lovely listeners, to consider supporting us in paying our future guests for their time. So you can head to our coffee page in the episode description and it's also in our bio on Twitter. The minimum donation is £3 and all the money would go to us and would go towards paying future guests. Um, the platform itself, Coffee, doesn't take a cut, so all the money would go towards that. Um, give what you can if you can. to number two now oh my god number two nearly the, the top spot okay so number two is actually our christmas episode oh episode 14 so i can't believe that this is like just over six months ago where has time gone i also no, can't I believe know. that we've gotten to the one year anniversary quite frankly with the fact that we recorded <laughs> yeah. and started recording this year uh, a year ago but in this episode we got to sit down with Editor of the Wales Arts Review, Gary Raymond. Gary Raymond, <laughs> and talk about his uh, his Christmas book, "How Love Actually Ruined Christmas." Oh yes, which was uh, with, as someone who had had never and still has never seen Love Actually all the way through, uh, was a very interesting conversation for me. <laughs> I'm going to write a book called "How Gary Raymond Ruined Love Actually" because <laughs> I haven't been able to watch it since. No, not really. No, I haven't. I haven't been able to watch it since. I've, I've got too much of a critical eye on me now. But yeah, really fun interview for sure. It was a great interview talking about stuff that I didn't know about the film. 
So, like, mm. plot lines that had been cut and, like, the issue mm. of things like, you know, having same-sex couples who, like, constantly fall into that trope of, like, one of them has to die. You know, that being That was cut. unbelievable. Like, some of the stuff... And they weren't even in it. Yeah. <laughs> Just to top it all off, it was just shit. Ooh. Do we swear on this podcast? I don't know. <laughs> right. The, the representation they were given was shit anyway. And then they didn't even put it in. Yeah. That's the... Anyway... So, but yeah. I think a brilliant conversation about about his book, which I do think you should pick up anyway, unless you don't want to ruin love, actually. But I think it's worth ruining love, actually, for yourself. I think it is. is it? You know, there's plenty of other rom-coms out there that are much less harmless, I think. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, and we also had, we spoke to a variety of people for that episode. Liam. I particularly remember my boyfriend coming on the show <laughs> and being slightly inebriated and talking about him putting salted peanuts in coke gross did i i mean did i consider ending things <laughs> again we spoke um, to um liam bell who was also another contributor about his uh, about his christmases and we also spoke to um essel sears about her christmas practices which was very fun. So it was nice hearing about other people's uh, Christmas practices. I think I spoke... Did I speak about my mum's massive Christmas ornament that has candles on and a big sort of fan? Yes, that really rings a bell, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Which I Kind of different love. practices. Very fun. I like that even now. It's, it's so weird, isn't it? It's that thing where it's like really warm. You can't imagine it being cold. When it's really cold, you can't imagine it being warm ever again. Why are we like that? But And we also played... Think lots of bloopers like oh God, yeah. so many bloopers <laughs> haven't we always though but, so many bloopers. i mean if people don't listen till the end i'm gonna say this now to listeners you're missing a treat at the end of every episode <laughs> with a blooper or two and normally there's far more bloopers in an episode because we can't pronounce things correctly i can't see being kind i can't pronounce things correctly <laughs> I'm not talking about Welsh now. I'm talking about just English. Like, there's some days where we can't speak. <laughs> I can't speak a lot of the time. It's my problem. But, um, but yeah, I think that's it. You know, we're suited to podcasting. Never be on live radio. How many times then did you watch the film? So you've said that you over the course of, like, two weeks, you were watching it every day, pausing it. That I, only watched it once. I only watched it you once. You only watched it once. I only it's watched like... it once. I mean, I've seen it many times. And weirdly, I mean, this this is like, I mean, you know, this isn't therapy. You're not my therapist. But um, Love Actually is a film that if it's on TV, I find it very difficult not not to watch it because I hate it so much. <laughs> um, I I just, you know, I just, I want to hate it. I get a lot out of that. It's like cathartic. You know, in 2020, I'll be looking to see when it's on just to sort of get 2020 out of my system through the medium of watching Love Actually. I felt so angry about, you know, the 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 Martin Freeman, Joanna Page um, soft porn because the film, the film is supposed to be about exploring all the different types of love, right? Um, so it's not just like, you know, physical romantic love, but also about familial love and all this kind of stuff. And there was a lesbian storyline in there where Frances Delator um, is, you know, with her lesbian partner and her lesbian partner is terminally ill and dies at the end. Of course, of course, the lesbian partner dies at the end because it's written by a heterosexual white man. So so obviously um, that's how that storyline goes. But they cut that entire storyline because um, the, after the first edit, the film was too long. It was like three and a half hours long. So understandably, they had to find ways of cutting things. But to cut that and to leave in Joanna Page and Martin Freeman, who are just like having sex in every scene, uh, which makes n no sense and actually messes up quite a lot of the timeline. If you take that bit out, the timelines do sort of tighten up a bit. But as it is, a lot of things just don't make sense in them, actually, about where they are in terms of the timeline of the film. If, for instance, you've got um, the character Tony, who for some reason is hanging out in the kitchen at a wedding party. And then in the very next scene, he's directing that porn movie. And so not only has he just like raced across the other side of London to just direct a porn movie. Well, it's not a porn movie, but let's not get, it's actually a explicit sex scene in a mainstream Hollywood movie that's being shot in London but it's supposed to be based in Europe or something. So. so you've already mentioned, you've also written about how people's critical faculties seem to have been put on hold when kind of watching Love Actually. 
Why do you think this is? And could you say a little bit more about the idea of colourful narcotics that's in your book's title? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing I've got to say is I don't want to, like, be mean to anyone or insult anyone. You know, this is a a book that's supposed to be funny, um, uplifting, I don't know. But if if laughing uplifts you, then that as well, I suppose. So it's not a book that's supposed to be having a go at anybody who loves the film. And I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But, like, I find it really difficult when, like, somebody on Twitter will go, I can't believe you've written this book. Love Actually is my favourite Christmas movie. And then, like, you just click on them and the first word in their bio is feminist. You know, like, I just don't... I can't figure out how you balance those two things up. Because it's a film, first and foremost, that quite clearly hates women. It hates women from beginning to end. Um, in In my book, I go into a lot of detail... That probably the most detail on that subject. I think there are four narrative strands where a younger woman is having an affair with her older male boss um, or employer. Um, the, the main uh, stream of, uh, one of the main strands of humour in the film uh, are fat jokes, always directed toward women, although also directed towards um, Gregor Fisher's character, who's like Bill Nye's manager and just a general kind of sneering objectifying this sort of puerile idea that the feminine ideal is the um the supermodel the the idea of the supermodel is a constant you know in in the famous scene where you know the most famous scene where andrew lincoln turns up at kira knightley's door and has the flashcards and a lot of people forget that he literally says on the flashcards don't worry too much about me stalking you i'll probably be shagging a supermodel this time next year he's just isn't he just so charming and cute like that's his line like don't worry if you think i'm stalking you and you've just married my best friend i'll be having sex with someone hotter than you next year anyway and i'll have forgotten all about you like that is the that is the level of humor so i do think because i know so many brilliant intelligent people more brilliant more intelligent and more like compassionate and full of warmth than I have ever been or ever will be, who just turn around to me and say, don't spoil this movie for me. (laughs) And I just don't understand it. Before we get to number one, we want to mention a couple of episodes, a couple of interviews, that while they don't make the top five, they are interviews that really stuck with us for different Mm -hmm. reasons. And I think um, both of these, we came away afterwards speaking about the fact that we were incredibly inspired or incredibly moved by what our interviewees had spoken to us about. So one of our first honourable mentions is our interview with Dr Christina Thatcher about grief. And I think we were both kind of like, oh, this might be a bit heavy for the pandemic, but we were very much interested in how grief might be spoken about. And I think we were both kind of also a bit... um. I wouldn't say taken aback, but Christina was so lively and happy to chat about grief. And I think it definitely changed the way that I approached grief and not kind of boxing it up. It's okay to like appreciate grief at the same time. Yeah, I feel like Christina was such a good person to speak to because she's somebody who has a personal experience of grieving. She's someone who has done academic research into experiences of grief. And then she also writes creatively about grief and she had the the workshops as well didn't she yes yeah so just such a great person to speak to and I think you're right even though we were kind of like oh it's kind of heavy isn't it but like so many people are experiencing it and I think so many of our issues culturally around grief come from the fact that we don't want to engage with it because it's too heavy but everyone's going to experience it yeah and I at think some point it's, and, you know it's made me more open to listening to things about grief and about death so I listened to yeah. another podcast <laughs> mm. um, where the interviewer spoke to what's known as a thanatologist. So a person who deals with death, um, mm. dealing with all things like burials, kind of like living wills and stuff. And it, it did make me reflect on our conversation with Christina about this like engagement of the fact that like in a lot of Anglophone countries, our processes around death are often very much kind of like last minute you don't want to focus on death yeah and and, and the grief that that brings and the fact that these stages of grief are not one two three four five they kind of come in waves one day you'll feel angry one day you'll feel despair another you'll feel acceptance so it made me kind of reflect on just potentially how i might have to approach that at some point yeah i mean the more knowledge you have the, the better 
I think, hundred percent. But I don't know. It's one of the it's one of those things, right, where you're not going to be prepared for it. But if we if we had less of a taboo talking about things, mm. I do think it makes things easier. And there's something really interesting, actually. This isn't something we've discussed on the podcast before, but it is Wales Arts Review related. So you know, Cara spoke to Katie Wicks about her book Delicacy. Yeah. Which is oh, I've I've lent it to a friend. But I think the byline is something like it's a memoir about like cake and loss or mm-hmm. cake and grief. It's like something like that. It's just a brilliant, brilliant book. And it ends with a quote. And I think it's from Samuel Beckett. And it says, I can't go on. I'll go on. And I just think that's like that's just stuck in my head ever since. Yeah. And that that relates back to a lot of the conversations that we've had, I think. Mm. Just about how you think I cannot deal with that. But I do. Yeah. And you do. You just carry on. So I'd recommend to our listeners to go back and revisit that episode because that was a fantastic <laughs> interview. Um, yeah, 100%. And I, think I thought that we might come out of it feeling a bit like deflated or sad, but we mm. were so perked up after that episode. We were like, oh my God, we want to discuss this further. <laughs> yeah. I felt pretty inspired actually right? after it. But... Which I think brings us to our second honourable mention. And I think both <clears throat> of us... Every time I think about interviews that we've done for the Wales Arts Review, and we've done some fantastic interviews, our guests have been brilliant. But we were incredibly lucky enough to sit down with Elaine Clark, who is the daughter of Betty Campbell, who was voted for in the Hidden Heroines competition and will now have a statue revealed in Centre Square in Cardiff for her contributions to things like education in the community in Wales. And as the first black female head teacher, black female educator in Wales, she learning some of the stuff from Elaine about Betty Campbell was so inspiring. Partly as like two women who are in education, who are in higher education, and hearing about the trials and tribulations of a woman who just was so dedicated to education. Mm-hmm. and education for all yeah the she's fact- a huge advocate for kind of black people people of color in, in butte town and beyond mm. and hearing about things like you know being one of what like five in the teaching course and being the only black person on the course as well like yeah. everything stacked against her and, and she went on and funnily enough i was then talking to my grandfather about it because my grandfather was a head teacher in south wales and he was like oh i knew betty which was like really exciting that we'd had that conversation and I got to like hear from him about like his experiences then as a head teacher as well. Yeah. And like share that kind of collective experience of, of Betty Campbell and her impact in, in Wales. Yeah, I wonder what's because I haven't heard much about this statue in a while. Okay, so apparently it's due to be the statue's due to be unveiled on September sixteenth. Oh, exciting. In front of the new HMRC building at 6 Central Square. So that's according to a blog, cardiffjournalism.co.uk. Sorry if it's wrong, but it looks okay as a source. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's your podcast, bringing you the most up-to-date information that we can possibly find. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think we both came away. One, we were so excited about getting that interview set up with Elaine. Also hearing her experiences as a teacher and finding out that her own daughter is also a teacher as well. Mm. And we both came away just so like, I think we were both just so happy after that interview. We were just so inspired. Mm. Like even for a I few remember days just after. crying. <laughs> no, no, not like proper sobbing, but I remember when Elaine was speaking about, I think when they found out when it was going to be Betty Campbell's statue. And like, they just saw her face appear on this. I'm I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. They like saw her face appear on this big screen. I just thought I could just cry thinking about just like what that must have been like. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's an incredible moment to celebrate a woman who did so much for education in Wales and so much for people of colour in Wales as well. So that was an interview that just, yeah, I I can't put into words how, how, impactful that interview was for both Mm. of us I think it was great because that was quite again like fairly early on I don't know I mean obviously we enjoyed it from the outset a bit kind of uneasy as we started like getting into the podcast but with that I feel like that really kind of solidified for me that this is something that I really enjoy doing yeah it came out it was our it came off after our second episode Ah. so that was quite early on 
But every time I think about interviews and interviewing for the Wales Arts Review, I think about how, and we've spoken about this, just how amazing it's been to speak to so many people mm-hmm. in Wales who've been doing kind of incredibly creative work in Wales and getting to share that with a load of people as well. And us getting to like really sort of dig deep <laughs> and find out yeah. more about, you know, the conversations and, and stuff that is happening in Wales as well. I feel like kind of even at the best of times, it's hard to have these conversations as much as we have. And even like, especially like now when like there's been very little opportunity for networking Mm. and that kind of thing. But we've managed to kind of have these conversations during this time. Mm. It's been really good. So our number one most listened to episode is episode 13, Adaptations, Jane Austen, The Queen's Gambit and Questions of Fidelity. And I remember us having a very long conversation in this episode (laughs) about films and about adaptations and about Blade Runner and The Handmaid's. (laughs) But um, it was, I think it's the only episode that I've not been able to get in on the interview i think so yeah i think i did this one on my own didn't i with sean owen Mm. um we spoke about her adaptation of pride and prejudice for audible for a jane austen collection Mm. um i remember as well during this interview i i didn't listen to audiobooks at all Mm. and um since then happy to report i have listened to this adaptation of pride and prejudice and i also listen to audiobooks every night i cannot sleep without one (laughs) So I certainly adapted <laughs> since this um, ooh, little, little pun there. Um, I, yeah, I've certainly kind of um, become more interested in audiobooks mm. following that episode. But it was absolutely great to speak to Sean. It was one of those things, again, like, you know, we were saying when we spoke to Elaine and afterwards and, and Christina and we felt really kind of like great afterwards and I felt like that after speaking to Sean actually oh really (laughs) like it's a really like lovely chat yeah for sure but yeah the adaptation of Pride and Prejudice really interesting so still 100% recommend that but yeah and then we also spoke about adaptations more broadly didn't we we spoke about um you discussed this question of fidelity there was a there was a piece was it Carolyn Percy's in defense of adaptations yes so I discussed that piece and that was kind of thinking about this idea of adaptive fidelity and how sometimes movement away from what people might call like the original or like the source text, mm. um, both of those in kind of like quotation marks, um, how you might gain something in moving away slightly and kind of embracing the freedoms that, that might might give you. Yeah. And you spoke about the adaptation of the, <laughs> the Queen's Gambit and um, fun fact, I've actually written Queen's Bandit in my notes. <laughs> Again. Just like I, I said wrong in the episode. I, think <laughs> I kept um, calling it the Queen's Bandit. What is that? Every so often yeah. I, I think about that series. I do think. And uh, one, how good the fashion is. <laughs> mm. um, but it was it was actually Gary's review of it, sort of likening it or drawing out this discussion of classic sports movies or sports, you know, series that follow like sports and achievement. And that sort of playing with chess then and how you do that, but as a woman. And then some of the issues that had been raised. So I'd read like a bitch media piece that kind of queried the use of like a black female character as like the black savior for a Mm. white woman. And it's like, we spoke about, and it goes back to that question of, should you move away from certain things? And we were like, if you're constantly going to be returning to old texts to adapt them do you need to consider kind of a contemporary discussion so that you're not just repeating the kind of flaws yeah of certain things it's okay to have a black female character that might appear throughout the series not just in the first episode and the last episode only to save the the white woman like you know what i mean yeah yeah move away from that idea that like black characters are always supporting characters Mm. because that's just such a trope right across so much yeah and only by actually moving away from that is that pattern going to change so it does feel so, so like kind of irresponsible to just make something new and you you would have certain like freedoms that are like creative freedoms in adapting something you're doing something new and you just think oh yeah 
can't just do that you know it just feels a bit irresponsible yeah you can have those conversations I think you've got to have those conversations to like really sort of critically get into material text yeah 100% yeah well here's a bit from that episode when you watch the adaptation of the novel, it fixes the image. It, it you can never of, really have that image that you had. Yeah, it again. kind of also like is it is a dissonance with your image or your reading mm. of a character. Um, like I kind of really love the um, Hitchcock Rebecca. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I felt like everything kind of was right, and I haven't watched the newest one on Netflix because. I've not heard great things and I kind of want to keep the Hitchcock one as <laughs> as my te- as the film that I've seen. I mean, I could talk about that new adaptation on and on. I feel like it just missed in so many places, but but anyway, that's that's for another episode. We I can think. talk about that later when I'm talking about another Netflix adaptation, so. Yes. So Percy continues to position the plethora of the book is always better than the movie means as testament to the fact that adaptations have something of a troubled reputation, which I think we've foregrounded very well there. (laughs) Though Percy herself has had mixed reactions to film and TV adaptations of mostly books that she's loved, there's always a part of her that sympathises with those who have to adapt set narratives. She states that like translating text from one language to another, Adaptation is more an art than an exact science, and the balance between being faithful versus the audience expectation and the differing needs of various mediums is a tricky one. So beginning with book-to-screen adaptations, Percy outlines the various difficulties and things to consider in the process. So there's the use of narration in books to flesh out the story versus how visual components do the same thing on screen, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's different demands happening there. And there's also the matter of what Percy terms as compression, deciding what to leave in and what to leave out of a narrative. And this can relate to the factors that she's already outlined, but also to time, financial, technological, and even cultural restraints. So making an interesting parallel back to my interview with Sean, Percy takes as an example the two endings of Joe Wright's 2005 adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So I didn't actually know about this, but there was one for the UK market and one for the US. Oh. And the US ending, Percy writes, is a conversation between Elizabeth and Darcy in the torchlit grounds of Pemberley, which leads into a romantic kiss. The UK version ends with the previous scene where Lizzie tells Mr. Bennett that Darcy has proposed. And she says, you know what, as much as I love the original novel here, I prefer the US version. I might know the US version because it might be the Australian version as well. I think I agree with Percy because there was something like oddly that like cements the intimacy between the two in that scene. Yeah. Coming off the back of that, because I think Percy in her article clearly is picking up on key things about our feelings towards adaptations. So I have decided to look at Gary Raymond's review of The Queen's Gambit, which as you know, and as many people who who might be listening and who've probably watched it, has kind of like skyrocketed. People are talking about it, people love it, some people dislike it. The question I want to ask, I mean I'll go through some of the points that that Gary makes in in his review. But the question that I want to ask is like, when is it okay to depart from source material? And like, how can we better handle moments in source material that maybe are outdated or fall outside the contemporary conversations we are having around like social and political ideas? So first off, The Queen's Gambit. So Gary mentions that at its heart, The Queen's Gambit is a sports narrative it's a sports film right so things that we think about like Invictus or um I want to say Space Jam (laughs) because it's classic (laughs) but these films that have like this tension and this build up and development of a character around sport that is basically what The Queen's Gambit is and Tevis who has written The Queen's Gambit the original novel he's written other works like The Hustler and The Colour of Money which focus around the back alley pool halls of like 1950s New York so he's not a stranger to these sports narratives and then entwining them with sort of what Gary calls the Bildungsroman right so like these Mm. developmental narratives for these characters I had a couple of issues with The Queen's Gambit I thoroughly enjoyed watching it I binge watched 
watched it. Like, thanks Netflix for allowing me to do that. Uh, <laughs> I I think it draws you in with how well styled it is for the era. You know, this is kind of in fifties um, America. Its color palette is beautiful. Like, there's some really striking scenes at the opening where Beth Harmon, the uh, protagonist, is in this girl's home because her mother has died. Spoilers. Um, but they're all dressed in green and then offset mm. by like the brown of like the wooden like the wood panel walls is it's stunning sort of like cinematography like camera work and like i was enraptured with beth's story like i wanted to know is she gonna make it in this chess world is she gonna be able to face the one chess player that is like haunting her that she seems mm. to struggle against time and time again can she then go out and beat him um, and is there something in her beating him that, like, allows her to find this love of chess? Because I think all the way through she's struggling with, like, what does chess also mean to her? But it's also partly because she's working out who she is mm. um, through it. But my issues with The Queen's Gambit kind of fall around two core ideas. One, uh, it's treatment of people of colour, uh, especially the character of Jolene, who we first meet in the girls' home and is the support character for Beth. You know, Jolene is black and she kind of helps Beth when she's younger to get through this girl's home and like teaches her the ways of how to like survive in it. And then she disappears pretty much for like five of the seven episodes. Mm -hmm. And she is then brought back in at this moment where Beth is having her sort of major breakdown before potentially going to Russia to face these chess masters. And other media sites have picked up on this. So Bitch Media, in their popular culture section, they, they had an article on this where they questioned the use of Jolene as this guardian angel. And this is what she's referred to in the series. She's called Beth's like guardian angel. She ends up paying for Beth's trip to Russia. She is the one who does the emotional labour of helping Beth when Mr. Scheibel dies, having to take her back to the girl's home that she kind of has these very traumatic memories from. Uh, helps mm. her through her like drug and alcohol addiction and is like these like what emotional support do you need to get through this to be able to do the thing that you are good at which is play chess and all through it whenever the men in the series try to help her they focus her back on chess they don't actually focus on her issue and Jolene is the character that is expected to do this. And time and time again, we are seeing like black characters that are used to support crumbling white characters who yeah. need support. But we get no background to Jolene. We get no sort of emotional attachment really to her. You know, we learn that she managed to get out of Methuselah, the girl's home. She's now working for a lawyer and like has studied law. So like she's doing well for herself, but we don't get anything really more. And I guess I guess my question with regards to, to race in this adaptation is like, given the contemporary discussions we are having around race, around things like Black Lives Matter, around the narratives that are like being told, how far is it okay to potentially stray from the source material to be able to maybe provide some comment on the issues that the source material can't? Has. Like, yeah, has or, or can't really, hasn't been able to unpack because obviously it's outside of those contemporary discussions. So finally then, we want to say a few thank yous. So first of all, thank you to all of the guests that we've had on the podcast for interviews. Um, not just the ones we've mentioned today, but everybody who's come on. Given given us their time, been patient yes. with us, <laughs> listened to our silly questions. But I've really just been so brilliant to speak to over the yeah, course of absolutely. the last year. Some really just highlights how many interesting, exciting projects in Wales that there are that, that we don't know about that I think yeah absolutely and without that. the guests the podcast it, it would just be us rambling on so and nobody needs that <laughs> no. they, they, they've made it what it is 
So big thank you to our guests. And then we want to say thank you to the Wales Arts Review as well and Gary especially for his support, kind of all, all of his advice and tips when we were getting started mm-hmm. and yeah, his um, continued support as, as we've continued doing the podcast as well. And trust in us to keep going with the podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> we also want to say thank you to each other. So I want to say a huge thank you to Rosie for putting up with me <laughs> for last minute. Do these questions look okay? <laughs> for the uh, very long two to three hour chats we end up having <laughs> before the podcast. And Absolutely just not. <laughs> really having just a brilliant time through the pandemic, through multiple lockdowns, being able to sort of see your face every every two weeks and have a chat has been Oh, thank you and thank you to Josie because Josie's doing herself a disservice there she is the most organized person <laughs> out of the two of us so yes thank you Josie and I, I mirror what you're saying it's been an absolute delight to be able to sit down and talk rubbish with you for a few hours a week and also record a really good podcast yeah it is a good <laughs> podcast it is and finally we want to say thank you to our listeners so thank you for tuning in every fortnight, for sending us your uh, recommendations for events to talk about in our What's on Wales segment, for sharing episodes, and for getting in touch with us and just telling us how much you've enjoyed the podcast. It really does make our day when we see like our listener numbers and we get tweets and emails from people. So keep sending them because we love the validation um (laughs) but thank you so much for continuing to listen to us and to the podcast we are going to be taking a short break to enjoy the summer and get things ready for the upcoming year yes and we'll be back in august with some new and exciting content see you then cool bye Should I do it? Okay. Oh, I'm squeaking. Can you hear my chair? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>